So it's Matthew 6 as you're turning. It's going to be verses 5 through 13. And this passage actually includes a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples called the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to read the whole text. But um, if you would like, I'd invite you, once we get to the portion of that prayer, it starts with the words, Our Father. I'd invite you to join and read that uh, together with me. So Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good to have you guys here. Uh, One of the pastors at SOMA. um, There we go. One of the pastors here at SOMA. uh, Glad to be talking today about prayer. I was thinking about, Mike and I were talking this morning about this this diagnosis of complex developmental trauma. And it reminds me a lot of the world in which we live, right? Think about that, that phrase and how loaded it is. Complex, right? We live in a complex world. Right. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that are happening that make life in this world complicated. We think about the complexities of uh, what's happening in our country politically. We think about globalization. We think I think about uh, fragmentation, the distraction, all these things that are bringing together. Just it's a really hard time to live. Right. And it's confusing. Um, We think about the developmental aspect, like how many of us have had our stories and our narratives disrupted. That's this idea of developmental trauma is in key moments in our lives when there's supposed to be attachment, when there's supposed to be intimacy, when there's supposed to be love. There's the absence of those and sometimes the opposite of those things. Right. And and many of us grow up in families. Right. Like 40 percent of young men are growing up in families without fathers. And even those fathers that are there. Physically are not there emotionally. They're not there spiritually. There's a lack of attachment. There's a, a void, a hollowing out, right, of, of uh, kind of our inner world. And we are confused. And then trauma, right, this, this deep, deep trauma that many of us experience. We're, we, we've been victimized. We've been traumatized. We've experienced things that we shouldn't experience. And so this is one of the reasons why, actually, we wanted to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. It's just to say, like, let's just call this normal. Like, this is, this is life in a broken world. And to the degree that we can look at and face life on life's terms and begin to live in a world that's broken, we can experience genuine, true, incremental, but true healing and redemption and the good life. This is kind of the heart of Jesus. What does it look like for us? So he's preaching the kingdom is this beautiful life that Jesus lays out for us. It's the recovery of what it means to be fully and truly and forever human, but, but to do that in a way that's aligned with the heart of God, to actually have purpose and meaning and significance in a world that seems to demean and devalue uh, who we are in our minds and our bodies and our souls and our spirits. That's the essence of what Jesus is talking about. This is what we've called being a community or learning to become a community of resilient love, right? Like the idea of resilience is we're strong. 
Like in the face of this kind of breakdown, we are a people who reweave the fabric of the world in love, right? We're learning what it looks like to live into what uh, Jonathan Edwards called God's, God's world of love, right? That's the idea of heaven coming down and Jesus says, your kingdom come down to earth, your will be done on earth. It's God's kingdom of love, his perfect realm of love breaking into in a real practical, tangible way, our everyday relationships, our everyday life in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, those places where we've experienced trauma, Jesus wants to heal us up and send us back into those places to be agents of healing and reconciliation, to be peacemakers, right? And so this is the heart of this sermon. And so here we're transitioning, um, and, and this passage here starts with this little word, and. So I, I can't help it, my mom's an English teacher uh, anytime I see the word and, uh, it's a conjunction, it's connecting two seemingly maybe uh, disparate ideas. So Jesus is, is kind of tying together two things, prayer and life in the world, prayer and justice, prayer and uh, generosity to the poor, right? Prayer and what he just generally calls righteousness. And then Jesus is kind of reaching back all the way here to chapter 5. Verse 17, which, again, Jesus, we know, like, Jesus didn't have the Bible. He wasn't reaching back to a text. Uh, the numbers are artificial. This was a sermon that Jesus gave. It was all one big idea. But he's connecting it back to chapter 5, five verse 17. He says, if you're going to live into this vision of the good life, you've got to learn what it looks like to become righteous. Righteous is a core theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when we think of righteous, we, we think negatively, right? Like, to be righteous is to be what? Self-righteous. We attach that word self to it and all of a sudden becomes the last thing we want to be. But Jesus' definition here of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is really rightness, right? Rightness. The word righteous is kind of this whole person alignment with the kingdom of God. Mind, body, soul, and spirit, right relationships, you could just say, between us and God. Uh, so there's this alienation between us and God. God is teaching us. And, and, and inviting us into a right relationship with himself, a right relationship with other human beings, a right relationship, get this, with our own selves, that we would experience an alignment and an integrity between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. Right? I know none of you guys struggle with that, but like who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside, right? That the, the that kind of false narrative, the false lies that we live in, this false self that we all kind of live in would learn to uh, align with who we are. So we get straightened out on the inside and then we get it aligned with who we are on the outside. And then right relationship with the world, right? That's the idea of righteousness. Think of it like uh, a bicycle wheel, right? And there's a spoke in the middle. We're rightly connected to every domain of this human experience. And so Jesus says, be careful how you pursue righteousness. There's kind of two ways to pursue righteousness, you could say. One, he's going to warn us about here in this passage. Beware, Jesus says. So he's connecting this, chapter 6, verse 5, and when you pray. So he's going back to chapter 6, verse 1. Beware, and Kent talked about this a little bit last week, so I'm not going to belabor it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. Bless you. In order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father, who is in heaven. So whenever Jesus says beware, we should pay attention. That's actually what the word means. Slow down and pay attention. This is a big deal. Jesus doesn't say beware of lust. 
He doesn't say, beware of adultery. He doesn't say, beware of, uh, you know, oaths. He doesn't say, this is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, pay attention. And so he's warning us here about something that can creep into the hearts and the practices and the habits, particularly of religious people. So in the first uh, chapter five, you could say Jesus is warning us of the evil uh, of he's warning us of evil works and saying, watch out for these negative things. In chapter six, Jesus is going to warn us about the potential uh, damaging effects of our good works. So the contrast here, beware, watch out, he says, that you don't practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. So let me say what he's not saying about prayer before I say what he is saying about prayer. And we're going to come back to this next week and teach on this again. Uh, Pastor Kent will be back next week talking about how we pray. Today we just want to deal with motivations of the heart, why we pray or why we don't pray. Okay? And so he's not saying don't pray. Like he doesn't say beware of practicing righteousness only. Right? So I say that because some of us grew up in churches and families where it was all about doing the right thing, disconnected from a heart that actually wanted to do the right thing. So it was just be a good person, be a good Midwesterner, be a good religious kid, you know, go to Sunday school, get your pen, get baptized, like do the right thing. But it didn't really matter what was happening inside of you as long as you externally did the right thing. And so what's happened with a lot of us, especially younger people, is there's been this, you know, this is the laws of physics, right? There's an action and then there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? It's a law of physics. And it's the same thing in our humanity, in our religious practice. We're so afraid of, of that moralism and legalism that we can swing the other way. And it's all about being gospel-centered and having just the right identity. And so it's all about who I am, but not about what I do. When the Bible, they never, the Bible never separates who we are, our identity, from our practicing of that identity in real life, right? It never makes that dichotomy. We make that dichotomy because we're afraid. But the reality is, he says, we must practice righteousness. Matter of fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount is about being and living righteously. So the answer is not just know who you are, it's know who you are and live in a way that's congruent with who you are. So he's not saying, don't pray or if you get to it. And, and I worry for us because many of us are like, I want prayer just to be like happen. It's like a young couple. It's just like, you know, I don't want to have to like plan our date night. I just want it to happen spontaneously. I just want it to happen organically, which basically means it never is going to happen, right? Especially when you have kids. Like nothing happens organically when you live with three terrorists. Like it's just not going to happen. You got to like plan the date. And it's like, I don't care how spontaneous. My wife and I, I don't care how spontaneous it is. I care that it happens regularly, right? Like we've got to plan intimacy. We've got to plan dates. We've got to plan when we serve. We've got to be super intentional. And so I worry for us when it comes to prayer. Like, like we have good intentions. We talk about prayer a lot. We teach on prayer in the church, but like how much actual time do we spend in prayer? I can tell you the American time use survey just recently came out eight minutes a day. The average religious person spends in prayer. It's not saying don't pray. He says when you pray. Whenever you pray. Like I'm assuming that you're going to have a life of prayer. Second thing he's not saying is don't pray in public. He doesn't stop at the way of practicing your righteousness before other people. 
Some have taken this verse and said, you know, you should only, you like, you know, you get that little, you get your little Oswald Chambers, most for his highest, and you get your little cappuccino, your flat white or whatever, and you go into your little secret place. And you just camp out in there and don't let anybody know that you're in there. And it's all about only private prayer life. And so you're afraid. You never learn how to pray publicly. You don't know how to lead others to pray publicly. You're afraid of like group prayer. Now, I know some of that's like you're an introvert, okay? Like you're an INFP or whatever you, you know, whatever like your personality inventory is. But my point is, he's not saying don't pray in public. Matter of fact, if you remember in chapter 5, he said, let your light shine before men publicly, public righteousness. Why? So that they can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. They'll never give glory to your Father in heaven if they don't know that you have a Father in heaven. And so one of the ways we do that is we pray. We're people that pray, like, out loud. We pray in groups. Matter of fact, Jesus goes on to say in chapter 7, chapter 18, chapter 21, and chapter 26, that there is power when groups of Christians come together banging on the door of heaven, asking God to bring his kingdom into this world. He says, ask, seek, knock, be like a persistent widow before a judge pleading the case. So he's not saying don't pray in public. He's just saying don't pray in public in this certain kind of way. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to, that in order to is a purpose statement, in order to be seen by them. Literally, the word here is don't practice your righteousness as theater. Like dramatic theatrical righteousness is a righteousness that desires to be noticed. I'm doing this so that you'll think I'm the kind of person who prays. Not because I actually want to pray. Not because I want to go before the heart of my Father. Not because I want to listen to God and align my life with God. It's I need to pray because I need you to know that I'm the kind of person who prays. I pray in public, but I don't pray in private. And that's Jesus' warning here. So two negatives that Jesus lays out before we get to the positive. First. Two ways not to pray before we get to how to pray. And this, again, this is all about heart motivation, okay? Nothing wrong with prayer. We want to pray, but we want to make sure that the heart motivation is there. So verse 5, let's go back to what Jesus says. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So the first way Jesus says don't pray is don't pray like a hypocrite. Well, how does a hypocrite pray? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And the street corners, out in public, where they're going to be seen. That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They're noticed, but it's by humans, not by God. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, in order to understand what it means to pray like a hypocrite, you have to understand the kind of Jewish way of life. Ancient Judaism had... Fixed prayers throughout the day, right? Basically, there were three hours of prayer. You had vespers at night, you had uh, lauds in the morning, and you had midday prayers. And good Jews would pray uh, at those hours. It was this kind of socializing force, right? Like, it, it established a way of being in the world. If you've ever lived in, like, a Muslim country. When I was in college, I lived in Morocco. And it was weird coming from American, or like if you've lived in Korea and you've ever been around Korean Christians, like you know this is the case. Um, the, the prayer is a way of life. 
in, in the Islamic context, it's about submission to Allah. It's about submission of your person before an all-seeing God. So the call to prayer goes out five times a day. You're in the middle of the desert in Morocco. The entire place shuts down. Prayer rugs go out no matter where you are. If you're in the bathroom, I mean, if you're like, you know, doing business, everything stops. You pray and then you go back to work. It's a socializing reality. And it's the same thing with the Jews. They would use the Psalms or they had a prayer book called the Amidah, the 18 benedictions, and they would pray. And what was happening, these hypocrites, literally the word there for hypocrite is play actor. So think theater, right? Which every Jew who lived in Imperial Rome would have known about the theater. These are people that wear masks. They pretend to be one thing on the outside, and yet they're another on the inside. These hypocrites would plan to be in certain places at certain times. They would conspire. And then when the time would come, 3 o'clock rolls around, oh, gracious Father. You know, they would just roll out these very, you know, the prayer voice, like people get, oh, Lord, like they don't talk like that any other time. And then they get into the prayer voice, like you have an uncle like that or a weird cousin or somebody like that, you know, that's just like, you know, they don't pray. And then you get at family dinner and all of a sudden they become Ben Stiller, you know, and that like, I mean, it's just like meet the parents. Have you ever seen it? Just YouTube it later. Um, but, but they, they become this, it's, it's, this is the kind of hypocrite of what they would, they would place themselves, they would position themselves so that they could be seen, so that they could be noticed. Jesus talks about these people in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. These are the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors, are the ones most vulnerable to this temptation, he says. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love places of honor at feasts, at social gatherings of the community. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They want front row tickets to Pacers games and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi or doctor or professor by others. They love titles. They love for you to call them pastor. They love for you to call them some title because what Jesus is saying here is that they're using prayer. They're using righteous deeds to establish something that they feel that they don't have on the inside. What they want is not to know God through prayer, but to use God in prayer. They want to use God for reputation. Man, he's a really good prayer. You ever heard somebody, it's kind of like a weird thing to say, but like, man, he's really good at prayer. They, they, They sermonize in their prayers, you know? Like you ever had somebody that does that, like a... They, they want to pray for you, but it's really like a gossip session, you know, or it's like a theology lesson. Our Father, systematic Lord of the heavens, who does, doth reign. And, all, and it's, huh? Like, are you talking to the same God? Like, Jesus said, Daddy, Abba. That's what they would do. It's all public and no private. It's using God rather than knowing God. What they wanted was power. What they wanted was what all of us want. By the way, this is a human desire that God has placed in us as, a, as image bearers. We all want to be noticed. The problem is they wanted to be noticed by the wrong party. They want to be noticed by human beings, not by God. And Jesus says, watch out. Beware. Why does he say Beware. I think it's important for us to stop and and ask that question. He says beware because it's so subtle. It's so hidden. Like if if it were obvious, they wouldn't be doing it. Like these are not evil men. We often think of these guys as like, you know, long, like mustache guys who are like sinister in those old like black and white films, you know, and they're like, you know, like twiddling their uh, mustaches and they're like trying. No, that's not. These were holy men. 
These were guys that you would admire. These would be your disciple makers in college. These would be your seminary professors. These are supposed to be the mature Christians. But Jesus says beware because it's often hidden through years and years and years of habitual self-deceit. Habitual socialization. Like you're taught this implicitly over long periods of time in your life. And then all of a sudden it just becomes a way of being that you can't see. Have you ever met somebody, or maybe you're like sitting next to somebody that's just blissfully unaware? They lack complete domain awareness of anything in life. Like, they make every conversation about them, and yet they're so unaware. It's like they can turn any conversation, no matter what you're, film, you can be talking about the cult. Well, you know, I have an uncle, who, and it's like, oh my goodness. They just lack complete self-awareness, and they're pretty draining to be around. They're exhausting to be, they're like energy vampires. You just get around them, it's like, He says they, they, they're, we're not aware of the ways we do this, the ways that we call attention to ourselves, the way that we do things. We serve, we pray, we fast in order to draw attention to me. It's not about me serving. It's not about me wanting to know God. It's about me wanting to be noticed by other people. I want to be the kind of person that is noticed. I think there's really a temptation for us in our context to do this. There's a temptation for us in what Flannery O'Connor, the great Southern novelist, called Christ-haunted. Like, we live in this kind of Christ-haunted world. And it's easy for us just to kind of fit in, right? And so what, why do we pray? We, fit, we pray to fit in. I mean, I, I, went, I didn't grow up in the church. When I became a Christian, my mom put me in the school because uh, a kid bit me at the Red Cross daycare where she worked. And so she just thought it'd be better for me. She was afraid. She put me in a Christian school, like one of those fire and brimstone uh, fundamentalist Baptist schools. And uh, she put me in there. And then it was quite an experience. Like, I didn't understand any of the rhythms or the language. People are calling each other brother and sister. I mean, it's super creepy. And she puts me in here. But it, but it was all about the externals in the schools, all about doing the right things. Never mind the fact that our principal was uh, molesting children. Never mind the fact that the pastor uh, was committing multiple affairs on women in the church. Um, just do the right thing. Make sure we pray before Bible class. And I'm not knocking on all Christian schools. My kids go to a Christian school now. But I am saying there's always a temptation for us to fall into this public without private hypocrisy. And so, um, like in my own journey, I'm a pastor now. I get... Part of like my job is to pray for you. I'm a professional prayer. And I was just thinking this week, like how many spaces I show up in where I come to pray for your kids. I come to pray for you. I come to, to pray in public. Like it's part of my responsibility to teach our church how to pray. And yet I haven't prayed one single time that week. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Even preparing the sermon was embarrassing to just look at how prayerless my life can be at times. Because the true test of hypocrisy is, how much do you pray privately? And that's what he's saying. How much do you pray publicly? How hot is your private prayer life? Is there an ache and a yearning to know God, not to use God to get what you want, not to bargain with God to make your best life now come true, but to actually know God, to yearn for his presence? The essence of hypocrisy, Jesus says, is not what you do with money, sex, and power. That's how we typically think of hypocrisy, the abuse of money, sex, and power. Jesus has the deepest hypocrisy in the Christian life is a prayerless private life. And it's so easy to do. 
right? To just pray to fit in, right? Uh, this is kind of like Christian virtue signaling. This is what we do kind of like in virtue signaling, right? We uh, are not really committed to something, but we want everybody to think we're committed to something. So I ran one marathon and now I have 10, 26.2 uh, decals on my car. Right. Like uh, I buy soy underwear. Uh, I, you know, have coconut flour here. I've got a three hundred dollar pair of organic cotton jeans. Why? Not because I care about poverty, because I want you to know on social media that I'm the kind of person who cares about poverty. Nevertheless, I have no meaningful relationships with anybody in poverty. I don't actually care about the cause. I just want you to see me and notice me. And I use that platform to do it. It's so subtle the way we practice righteousness in order to be seen. And the way that we practice prayer in order to be seen. So Jesus says, don't pray like a hypocrite and don't pray like a pagan. He goes on to say, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This prank like a pagan is this idea of just anxious babbling, right? Intense babbling. It's, it's throwing up words to, like, the, the ancient Greeks would just pray, and they would say, you know, God in the heavens, whatever your address may be, hear this prayer. And then there would be a number of rites and rituals, sometimes cutting, sometimes doing, you know, like prayer yoga or whatever it is to get in the right position so that I'm exactly sincere and I'm aligned with the, the, the whimsical nature of the gods today because today the gods are left-handed and blue-eyed and tomorrow they might be right-handed and brown-eyed. And, you know, like it's trying to do all that, that mumbo-jumbo. It's performance-based prayer. It's prayer that reduces prayer to an algorithm that bends the heart of God and the will of God towards my will. It's my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, if you could just make that happen, this world would be a much better place. So Jesus says, don't pray like a hypocrite and don't pray like a pagan. Don't let your motivation be to be seen by other people. Because you'll get your reward. People will think you're awesome. But you'll miss the true reward. And that's why we pray. So let's talk about that. And then we're going to stop and we're just going to pray together. Okay? We're going to stop. We're going to be done. Because we don't need more sermons on prayer. We need to pray. We need to teach each other how to pray. We need to help each other. So let me, before we do that, though, let me talk about why we pray. So the motivation, Jesus says, in prayer is not to use God. It's not to try to control God. It's not to turn God into some kind of a genie to secure our own happiness and our own self-fulfillment. He says, we pray because God is our father and we are his children. That's the heart of biblical prayer. It's life with the father. Notice how many times in chapter six, Jesus says, father, it's 10 there are only 17 references in the entire sermon. Ten of them come right here. As you practice your personal piety, as you practice your religious righteousness, remember, you're not doing it to be seen by men. You're doing it to be seen by your father. He's the one that will reward you. He's the one that will draw near to you. He's the one that will meet you in the secret place, in the lonely place. That's why he says, lock your door. This room that he's describing, the storage room on an ancient Palestinian farm, was the only room that could be locked. It's where you stuffed all of your valuables. He says, go into that place, get in private before God, whether you're out in public or in your prayer closet. The point is, your heart posture should be to block out everything. It's a, it's a mindfulness and attentiveness to the presence of God that says, I'm going to do whatever it takes 
get close to my Heavenly Father, to jump up into the lap of my Heavenly Father in His welcoming embrace. I mean, that's how simple it is. That's what He's talking about here. It's life with the Father, a life of relationship. We are relational beings, He says, created for a relationship with our Father, who, by the way, already knows what we need before we pray. We shouldn't cut the nerve of prayer. It should empower prayer, right? Like if my kids know, I've got four crazy kids from age six to age 11. I love them. And they know that their father loves them. They know if they have a need, they can come and they do. Daddy, daddy, doesn't matter what I'm doing. They, we have the interrupt rule and we try to implement that, but they just don't listen. They like, you know, knee me in the, in the, the leg or they punch me or they'll like, you know, dad, 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 I need something. Now I already know what they need. I'm, I'm laser focused on meeting their basic needs. But I just, I need dad to hear me. That's the life with the father that Jesus invites us into. It's a life of love. It's a life of intimacy. It's a life of relational exchange. What we'd call communion in Christian vernacular. Listening to the heart of the father. Submitting ourselves to the will and the design of the father. This is the life that Jesus lived, right? Jesus lived this life himself. He modeled this for us. Jesus says you should pray like I do. Pray like a child coming to their father, not like an employee coming to their boss for a reward because they've been good little boys and girls. It's not a conditional relationship. It's not a quid pro quo relationship. It is a child coming to a father who wants to hear from them. And I think that's why the disciples are so blown away by Jesus. I mean, all throughout Luke, I can give you passage after passage, Luke 5, Luke 6, Luke 9, Luke 11. The background to Jesus teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 is he's praying. And there's something spectacular happening as he's praying in Luke chapter 11. He's praying in front of the disciples. And something is going on there that's so amazing and so paradigm-altering that one of the disciples cries out, or maybe all of them do, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And I suspect that what they're discovering is Jesus' life in the world, his healing, his miraculous supernatural ministry, his care for the poor, his compassion, all the things that we want that this world is crying out for, right? Like, except we want the kingdom without the king, right? But Jesus is saying, no, if you want the kingdom, you've got to be connected to the king. You've got to be in submission to the king. You've got to be in relationship with the king. They're beginning to see and suspect, I think, that Jesus' life in the world is rooted in his life with the Father. And if I don't have a deep, vital connection to the Father, I'm going to burn out as I move out into the world to serve the poor, pursue justice, care about racial reconciliation, and engage in fighting racism. All these things, you know, camp courage, supporting adoptive families, it's really hard to run upstream against the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus says, if you want to be effective over the long run, your outer energy must be matched by the vitality of your inner life with God. Matter of fact, the sum total of your spirituality is found in the vitality of your inner life with God. Now with that as our backdrop, why we pray. Let's spend some time praying. I know that some of you are like, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have come to church today. This is going to get awkward. Okay, we're all about awkward at some point. We love awkward. Okay, so we're just going to invite you into our awkward uh, because we need to help each other. Because here's the deal. It's really hard to pray, isn't it? 
Like we all talk about prayer. Some of you could write dissertations about prayer. Some of you do Bible studies about prayer. But like how much time have you actually spent in meaningful prayer this week? Let's just not talk about the last month. This week. And what does that say about the quality of your relationship and your dependence on God as your father? Why is it hard to pray? I mean, do I need to tell you? Like digital distraction, right? Like dings and messages and emails are constantly disrupting our ability to be focused on God. Like you can't even help it. It's just like you're over here trying to pray and then like something just invades like some kind of a, a, a terrorist or an insurgent. It's like that beep comes. Oh, yeah, I got to do this. And all of a sudden you're off and it's over. Digital distraction, affluence keeps us from praying, right? Because why would I need to pray if I can just go out and buy it myself? We have father issues. Many of us have daddy wounds. And when we pray our father, it conjures up all of that. And we see God as we see our heavenly father, the dirtbag who treated us like crap growing up. And we can't pray to him. Many of us weren't taught how to pray. I mean, that was shocking to me to see in our health survey last fall how many people you look at the statistics, the majority of the overwhelming majority of people in the Midwest grow up going to church on Sunday. And yet when you read the narratives of your own stories, how many times we read somebody that would say something like this? My, I never saw my parents pray. I never saw my parents read the Bible. They certainly didn't teach me. The only time that it happened was at church on Sunday and at meals. Nobody ever taught us how to pray. And so we need to learn. We need to help each other. That's why Jesus says, when we pray, we pray our Father. It's a corporate prayer. In the South, we say y'all, right? It's second person plural or third person plural. Our Father in heaven, we pray together, we help each other, we stir one another up towards love and good deeds. So we're going to take Psalm 23, and we're going to take our remaining uh, 10 minutes or so, and we're just going to pray through this together. And I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I know this would be weird, this could be awkward, but I want you just to, in your own heart, cry out to God and say, God, help me in my unbelief. I don't even know if I believe, but would you make these words true? And I'm just going to silently pray in my heart, God, help me believe these realities. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, and maybe you just, it's been a while, right? It's been a while since you prayed, and you're a little bit nervous about doing that. We're going to give you the words, okay? The Bible gives us a Rosetta Stone for learning the foreign language of prayer. It's called the Psalms. So make these words your words. If you're sitting next to your spouse, grab them by the hand. You guys pray together. If you're sitting next to a roommate and you're believers, grab each other. If you're near your missional community, if you have your children in the room, just go and find some people. We can pray out loud. It's okay. Like the first service was like crickets. Everybody's looking around like, can I do this? Yeah, we're in church, okay? This is what we do. We pray. Okay, so let's do that together. If you're comfortable, if not, stay in your seat right where you're at. I'm going to lead you through this prayer, and we're just going to make these prayers our heart cry out to God together. We're going to beg God together to do a work in us because, guys, we need this. I love our passion for the community. I love our passion to see the gospel change everything. I love our passion for justice, but I am worried about our passion for prayer. Our elders are concerned about the heart posture of prayer. Are we doing that? We can grow. So let's do this together. So let's take a few minutes. We're going to start in Psalm 23. I've got the words up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along on the screen. I want to lead you through this. I'll lead us through a couple verses. You stop and pray out loud by yourself with a group, whatever's comfortable for you. We have some folks over here that would love to pray with you. Joseph and some of our deacons are here. If you want to pray with somebody, please go grab them. This is not a time for shame. This is not a time for guilt. Like if you can't do this at church, where else are you going to do this? You're going to do this with your boss tomorrow. You can do this with your buddies over drinks Wednesday night. 
You can do this with your girls Friday night in your me time. I don't think so. This is what we do. We pray and we help each other. So let's do it together. Hear these words from Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 23. And I want you to, if you need to close your eyes just to get into that mindful state, I want you to make these words your words. I want you to imagine what it was like if this was actually true of you this week. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We cry out to God and we say, God, be my shepherd. We confess and say, God, you're not my shepherd. I look to other things to be my shepherd, to be my God. I look to my work. I look to my bank account. I look to my relationships. I look to my children. I look to my health to be my shepherd. But God, I'm not really looking to you to be my shepherd. God, would you be my shepherd? Would you pick me up like a lamb? And would you carry me? Would you comfort me? Would you be with me? Would you give me wisdom and discernment and direction right now? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me into peace. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He gives me health. He gives me vitality. He gives me life. He gives me emotional health, spiritual health. He leads me in paths of righteousness, rightness in the world for his name's sake. Let's just take a moment and let's pray to God and let's beg him for that mercy. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table, a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's been said that prayer is simply as reflexive as breathing. We breathe in the grace of God and we breathe out our worry and our fear and anxiety. We live in a world full of injustice, full of suffering. Both that's inflicted on us and that we inflict on others around us. And Jesus in the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It says, hey, look it in the face. Call it what it is. But it's only a shadow. It can't ultimately destroy. It can't ultimately wound. It can't ultimately undo us. No weapon formed against us will prosper, the Bible says. And so we take confidence as we walk through valleys. The valleys are real. They hurt. They're painful. But we will fear them ultimately not. For God is with us. The strongest person in the universe is with us. The strongest being in the universe is with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. He prepares a feast for us in the full view of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil, calling us saints and his beloved ones. And then he causes our cup to overflow. We have so much joy because we know that ultimately we are with God and that he will not abandon us. That's what we're afraid of, right? We're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of being left alone. We're afraid of being rejected. And God says, I will never, never leave you alone. Let's thank him for that. And let's pray that God would be with us as we walk through the scary places of our lives. Let's bring those emotions before him right now. Let's do one more. Let's finish out the passage. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever we live in a time when it's cool to kind of rage and revel in how broken the world is and it is broken make no mistakes there is injustice everywhere there is sin everywhere but that's only half the story god is good the bible says and he does good towards us he makes the rain fall on the righteous 
and the unrighteous. He gives breath to our lungs. He gives vision to our eyes. He opens up our ears and allows us to hear and to see and to feel and to experience life in his world. It is his world. And so, so much goodness also that he's given us, right? So much mercy. You know what the word mercy means? You get what you don't deserve and you don't get what you do deserve. And think about all the times in your life when you did something, let's just call it what it is, dumb, idiotic, foolish, sinful. You get sinned against, but you also are a sinner. And how many times you didn't get the natural consequences of what should have happened. That's mercy. That is the direct supernatural intervention of God in your life. And so we cultivate this practice of gratitude. God, thank you for your mercy. Yes, we're broken, but we are also being redeemed. And God is good. And let's celebrate that. Let's lift up voices with grateful hearts of all the ways that God shows his beauty and goodness and truth in our lives every single day. He is holding the atoms and the cells together in your body right now. He is good and he does good. And we will dwell with him. We will come home to him. To come home to God is to come truly home. We will come home to him and be with him forever, experiencing his presence and his power forever and it starts right now that is the heart of the kingdom of god so let's pray and let's thank him for that and we'll close and go to communion all right lord hear our prayers in the name of jesus we ask amen now here's what's crazy you just prayed for like nine minutes you prayed more than most americans pray every day and and i know like that's scary but like like how much better do you feel maybe then maybe for the first time you get some things out, you begin to come before the heart of your father who wants to hear your prayers and wants to answer them. And yet, what do we do? We take it to our friends. We take it to social media. Uh, we take it to the newspapers. We take it, you know, whatever the newspapers are outdated. We blog about it, you know, like, but Jesus says, bring him to me. I, I want to hear him. And, I, and I'm ready. God says, I'm ready to answer. I stand here ready to answer your prayers. How much different would your life look this week if you did that every single day? If you did that once this week? Like, how much different would it be? And here's the cool thing is that God hears and answers our prayers. Not because of our sincerity, not because we get the words right, not because we're educated, not because we have money or don't have money. God hears our prayers because of Jesus. Jesus living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we should have died, rising again with all the resurrection power and energy of God himself, makes our prayers effective. Hebrews says he is a sympathetic, compassionate high priest who lives, who lives to make intercession on behalf of God's children. So any prayer you pray is perfected, as imperfect as it is, is, imperfe- is perfected because of the life, death, resurrection, and ongoing ministry of Jesus in your life and in my life and in our lives corporately together. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We come and we take the bread and we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying to make my prayers effective. Thank you, Jesus, that you prayed our Father before me so that I could pray our Father and that God would hear my prayer and answer it and draw near to me and be my shepherd and walk with me through those scary places and deliver me home one day. That's what we celebrate in communion. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. So if you're here and your righteousness is found, you are united by faith with Jesus, praying that prayer, believing those words. The Bible says you're a Christian. And we want to invite you to come and receive communion. We have stations up here in the front and around. would love for you to come take a piece of the bread, tear it off, dip it into the cup, and be reminded that God is with you. He is for you. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will make all of those prayers effective ultimately ultimately.
If you're not a follower of Jesus, stay in your seat. Just take that time again. Maybe you cry out to God and you say, God, help me. Just like the disciples, help me in my unbelief. I don't believe. Help me in my unbelief. And you might be unbelieving and be a totally religious person. You could be here and be a totally irreligious person. Either way, maybe you make that prayer your prayer and you cry out to God and you ask God, save me, rescue me, come to my defense, help me, humble me, draw me. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing a song and we'll send you guys back out. Father, thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that we can come to you not as a boss, not as one who has conditions or places conditions on our employment, but God, one who is a father, the perfect father, our heavenly father, our hallowed, holy, sacred father. God, we come to you believing that to be true, that it feel true all the time. We thank you that Jesus is greater than even our hearts and that he invites us to come because of his blood that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us. We can have access and intimacy and trust and love with you. God, just speak to our hearts right now. Remind us that you are good and that you are for us as we come and we receive this gift of communion together. We pray in Jesus' name.